he is very, very smart. And he also is very, it's very difficult to convince to change his mind. And so I knew if I brought him there and said, do you want to buy this? The answer would be no. And then it would never happen. So my goal was, and it worked, is that I wanted to just simply do it and then bring him a project study of this just happened. Here's the white papers, dad. Here's exactly how it happened. And dad, to help you retire earlier and to start doing seven homes a year, let's do this route. So it wasn't like I was like trying to hide anything from him. I just wanted him to see that it worked because I know at that time, that's the only way he would trust me. Now, my dad's one of, you know, other than the huge institutional people, family offices that give us really large checks, my dad's invested in every single deal we've done, which means a lot to me because at first he would have never trusted me with $17 to go in there and buy a duplex. So I'm glad it worked out. Welcome to Real Radio, episode 50, with Owen Dashner and Chris Bomaloo. No, no. <laughs> yes. All right, let's focus on doing this right, not doing it fast. Okay, we were, okay. We, well, we already did it. It's not Owen Dashner and Chris Pomerlu, it's just Chris Pomerlu. Well, you did come back from Mexico, we, so welcome back. You're listening to Real Radio, the nationally trusted name in real estate investing. We dig deep to discover investors' why in real estate. If you want to skip all the BS and get in investors' heads, you're in the right spot. Be one of the thousands to check out realradio.com. Owen Dasher, man, what a celebration today. Episode 50. The, lo- <laughs> the longest episode we have ever had and... I'm going to say arguably the best. Yes. It was great content. Great content. Uh, this is... I mean, it depends on what you're looking for, but this content was different, but also amazing. Well, I think everybody can relate to getting started, trying to figure things out, growth, scaling up, and then we lead into other more advanced techniques like uh, partnerships, syndications, raising private money involving family members, what makes a good partner, what, you know, what doesn't, there's so many good things in this that I think everyone at any stage of their real estate investing career can really grab onto and apply to their day to day. Yeah. Uh, we, we knew exactly what we we're getting into because we've been literally had Chris on a board for so long. We sand, we sandbagged this episode. He I thinks mean, that he thinks that we were trying to like not bring him in because uh, for any specific reasons, but really we just knew they would be so good because we know Chris personally for such a long time and we've heard him present over the years. We knew the content would be amazing, so we kind of we we waited to make sure that this would be a special edition episode. Well, he's one of the one of the brightest and most successful real estate investors in the on the Omaha metro area and probably in the Midwest. I mean, I don't even think that's arguably. I mean, it's true. And, and he's probably been in more podcasts than anybody else we have we have ever he's, met in our life. He's kind of a podcast whore. Yeah. Um. So there's that, <laughs> but uh, he likes the limelight, evidently. He's, but no, great dude. Um. I I like. Chris is Chris is a great guy. I wish I would have met him a long time ago because I think I probably would have gotten out of my comfort zone a lot sooner in uh, real estate investing. He uh, he kind of showed some things along the way that I really delayed for a long time. What's well, funny, you know, because I I've worked with, Chris is actually one of the first investors I ever worked with uh, when I in my real estate career. And and then I run across people that have brought up Chris and they're actually intimidated by him. 
to the next level. Like, it's his hair. <laughs> it's his hair. But um, we're gonna let the podcast do the talking. Uh, this podcast is so long. Let's 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 actually keep this kind of short because. Usually, you and I will will rant for about thirty minutes. We'll do that in the next podcast. <laughs> but wait, we can't leave the the listeners hanging without a golden, golden nugget. nugget. Today's golden nugget: Are you struggling to find a property out there with all the competition in the market? Even despite the changing interest rates and everything out there and the uncertainty, it seems like there's still a ton of competition. Yes. <laughs> she agrees. Wow. wow. Okay. Thank you, random citizen. Uh, consider looking at changing the use of a property. So looking at, say, um, a hotel and converting it to apartments, looking at industrial or large retail and converting that to storage units. So a lot of times you're going to see a market on the, or a property on the market that's being marketed as a built for purpose you know, use. And if you look at that and you say, okay, there's a Kmart that went out of business. Could I convert that into storage units? Maybe go in and evaluate the square footage and say, I could build this out into a, you know, 200, 300 unit storage unit facility. And it would be a much higher and better use and a better return than I would get if I just operated it as large retail. Mm -hmm. And you could do the same thing for hotels into apartments. You could do the same thing for office, maybe into apartments or another use. But I think that's a an underserved uh, part of the market. And think outside it, the box. An overlooked part. And so one, one tip on top of that, so the gold nugget is consider other uses for properties, and that'll help you kind of like fill your deal with potential pipeline. And the tip is when you're changing a property's use, check with the city about things that would need to be brought to code that you maybe don't realize. So if, for example, if you're buying a hotel, maybe they don't require that you have a sprinkler system in place because it was built before a certain year or after a certain year. But when you change the usage to a, from a hotel to apartments, they now require it. So that's something that you may not realize. And it's important, uh, like checkbox that you need to have. And also like one other thing that I learned recently, fire hydrants are a thing. And if you're looking at a property and changing the use, your local municipalities may have you, uh, may require you to put in a fire hydrant. And that may be a huge expense because you have to run like six inch supply lines to your fire hydrant. You may have to have it within 150 you know, feet of your building or buildings. So that's something that you could overlook and have a, you know, have it be a huge cost. And so that's tips. today's golden nugget. What do you got in the news today, Owen? So in the news, foreclosure starts are up 219% year over year. Wow. Yeah. And this is a leading indicator of kind of where we're at right now. Well, so funny, the funny thing is that we just did a short sale class for our real estate team because we have anticipation of more short sales coming too. Yeah. And, and so part of this is because, you know, in 2020, they had the foreclosure moratorium and the eviction moratorium. So they kicked the can on that and then they picked back up in 2021 but now they're way up, like 219%, which is a huge number. So 117,000 foreclosure starts in the first six months of 2022. Now, here's another nugget on the nugget. I love nuggets on the nuggets. When way. we start going into, if we start going into a foreclosure-heavy environment where there's a lot of REOs, so bank-owned properties, this is a little... Probably now a little uh, known business or a little like you know pursued business, field inspection and service companies that 
will take a bank-owned property and secure it, clean it out, get it ready for listings, and they check on it. So you may be able to go out and take pictures of a property that a bank has on their list, right? So there's these there's all these late payments. We want you as the field service inspector to go out and take pictures of it. And then we're going to use those pictures to determine whether or not we need to change the locks, whether it's abandoned or not, et cetera, right? And then you have your clean-out companies that actually go out and clean all the trash out. They have dumpsters and so forth. This was huge, huge business. I actually started briefly a company before it got like crazily competitive in like 2008 or nine. Uh, like to do field inspections. So this is something I think is going to come back into the fold. And if you're prepared for it, this could be a real, this could be a chance for you to really clean up. I mean, you could start a business for pretty low overhead, go into it and change locks and like secure properties, winterize them, clean them out, you know, have a dumpster business and all that. So I think it's all about being prepared. One thing I want to make sure that we're touching topic on right now, but also in the near future is to, um, you know, in the news, in this, obviously, we're recording this at the same day that we're broadcasting this out to everybody. So we just had the the uh, interest rates go up three quarter percent. Mm-hmm. And as you guys are, as investors, you guys are like probably like, oh my gosh, rates are getting so high. I'm not going to buy investment properties right now. But guys, check out the MLS because there is deals are happening right now. And you guys, and you right now as an investor, you have more negotiating power right now on the MLS than you've ever had before. So you might say, hey, I'm not going to invest because the rates are going up. But right now you can actually get deals on MLS. And before, you know, a couple months ago, you, could, you couldn't get deals on MLS. You could only get a deal through a wholesaler. So you guys actually have more negotiating power right now. And, it, and just offset it. You might be paying a little bit more uh, in interest, but you can pay less on, on getting deals and you can actually get deals right now. So don't be scared to shop and still get deals, make offers, get, make offers, get deals. Because right now as an investor, you can get more deals right now than you can have two, three months ago. I totally agree. Yeah. And I, and we're going to dig more into this in here in the next few weeks as, as the podcast goes, but right now don't be scared. And be, because there's so many people not buying deals right now, you can need a deal. Well, this is the, this is the time where you start like corralling uh, your your close trusted people, your your money partners, your your deal finders, wholesalers, people that have access to deals or access to money. This is the time. So start getting relationships solidified where you have the chance to go out and when you see a deal, you take it down. Not like, oh, here's a deal. What do I do now? I don't have an LLC. I don't have people. I don't have partners. I don't have money. Like now's the time. So take advantage of this time to start like solidifying your team of core people you're going to surround yourself with where you can just go out and take massive action if you, if that's what your goals are. And I got one more golden nugget for you guys before we wrap up here. and get Bring it. it. Okay. So right now, uh, you guys that are listening to this, join Omaha RIA. Uh, that's, our, that's my local uh, RIA that I run. And on, on September 6th, we have Owen Dasher that's going to be on it. We're going to broadcast this on our podcast, but he's going to do Investor 101. Uh, Owen didn't realize it, but he did a local meetup in Lincoln, and he was just going over his basic story. But really, like he like did an absolute home run, and we talked about this in a previous podcast, on just the basics on getting started in real estate investing. He didn't realize how amazing he was at that. 
And and I didn't realize it either until I listened back to it. But truly, truly, his information on getting going and investing was amazing. So September 6th, here in Omaha, and we're going to be at a downtown location. If you're local, come hang out. And and listen to Owen. He's going to give you your basics one on one and getting started investing. We're gonna put that out there, and you are gonna learn so much from his mistakes and his the things that he's learned from. And he's not gonna give himself the the, the real accolades on how how amazing he is at this. But you're gonna learn so much on this, and we're gonna put that out there and take that information and grow from it. Well, here, okay, here's what I will commit to. I will annihilate you with quick tips on and, and which are mostly based on things that I screwed up on and learned along the way. Best thing and we're going to talk about what do you do when you first start out? How do you grow your business? How do you balance having a full-time job while, you know, scratching the investment itch? How do you work with your spouse and having children mm-hmm. on uh, you know, in, in your investing business and just some things you can layer on, like when when should I get an LLC formed? Who should do it? Should I do it myself? Like all of those things we're going to talk about, kind of the pros and cons. And uh, I just think, you know, like like you said, I, I'm not great at taking compliments. Thank you for that. But uh, I'm going to share all of the things that I learned along the way or or most of them. You guys probably don't have 20 hours to spend, but um, we'll, we'll plow through as many, many of them as we can and give you a chance to ask some questions. So we're going to have a, a big Q&A. That's what I'm envisioning here. And a lot of just like bullet points that I'm going to try and bang, you know, bang around and, uh, and let you guys learn from. This is our highest requested, uh, uh, event that we've had. Like we, we have over 460 local members in our local RIA and constantly people are saying, give us information on this specific topic. And there's nobody better that I could ask than Owen to be able to present on this. Thanks, buddy. And so, again, if you're not local, join our Facebook page. You can watch this, uh, watch this whole feed. We'll put this on the podcast probably in about the next six weeks. Um, and you guys can listen to it there. But if you are in town, this is not one to miss. And you can ask personal questions live on, on the podcast, too. So check us out. Don't miss us. That's a golden nugget. And it's our news update for the week. Boom, mic drop. And without any further ado, let's get to Chris Pomelu, the longest podcast we've ever done. <laughs> hey, buddy. How's it going? This is a long time. You know that we've had you on the podcast board for so long that when I finally booked you, I delete, I, I erased it off and your your name's almost permanently stained in on the board. I saw it. I believe you. I believe you. I didn't believe you until I saw it, but I believe it now. We, we, uh, your business partner, Colin Schwartz, we had him on, on episode 10, I believe it was. And then, uh, and then this was a special edition for us. We thought fifty for us, not for the listeners per se, but for Owen, Dennis, and I. Fifty was a big deal. Yeah, and we're we're just actually technically when this is being recorded, I think we've been doing this for a year now. Mm-hmm. But fifty was a big deal for us. So we're like, let's let's make sure that we have somebody that you know we look up to and is doing big things and has been on twenty five podcasts. Let's bring let's bring in Chris Palmer. I mean, and it's, the important thing is that we let Colin know that I'm forty spots better than him. I think that's important for him to know. And our recording abilities have gotten way better. Since well, then. I mean, let's let the ratings show after this. <laughs> what, the, what the right choice was? Uh, okay, fair enough. You know, it was Brad Clark was dead determined. He his podcast was going to beat Colin's. It didn't happen. Colin is still number two rated podcast of all. I think right now uh, that does not surprise me. He's certainly good. Mike Powers has got him by about a hundred downloads i think it doesn't surprise me either (laughs) (laughs) 
And then, uh, and then uh, Drew Zaruba is, I think, at third spot right now, if I had to double check. Oh, this is funny. So uh, I just got back from Mexico, as I probably mentioned in the intro, and I ran into a dude – or not ran into. I, I like, went there uh, with – Another couple. So Jen and I went there with another couple, and they brought their kids who were 19, 20, 20, and 22, I believe. So they have three kids. One of them knows Drew evidently fairly well. Like they live in Kearney, oh, where Drew's from. So it was really funny. I took a screenshot or a, a you know selfie with him and sent it to him. Thanks, Denless. Drew Zruba is <laughs> literally going to be the future you. Like he's 22 and already has what? Six duplexes, yeah, and he's still in college. So jealous, and he started by saving all of his coins when he was little. Good for him. Put that into not bit, bit not bitcoins. Bitcoin. <laughs> Put that into Bitcoin, and then took loans against his Bitcoin to buy his investment properties. I wonder how that leverage is going now. The leverage on the Bitcoin. <laughs> Either way, good thing he got it out then. When I was twenty two, I I was trying to save up to to buy. Dumb stuff like loves of bread and stuff. So good I for him. Loves of bread. I, think, I, I, think <laughs> I was in college, man. When I was twenty two, I was trying to pay for my Roush Mustang that I bought brand new off the showroom floor. Smart, I, smart. Call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> so when all the best life decisions are made uh, when you're twenty one and twenty two. Well, it sounds like he did it right. So let's uh, let's ask this question to start off because uh, you know we normally don't have such close people in here. So everybody in the room, tell your story when you first met Chris Pomelo. Mm, oh. That's awkward. Mine, yeah. mine is very, very simple. Oh, I, it's, it's yeah, I met him in the real estate meetup. First time we did the real estate. When, Colin uh, Schwartz's? Yeah, Colin yep. Schwartz's um, real estate meetup. They asked me to live, not live stream, to record and make a highlight video of Chris's presentation. The, 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 that he, the night that he presented. That was a great presentation. Yeah. Yeah. And Thanks. then they actually liked the um, the little video that I made for him. So that was that was a very short Formal, and then I met him informally today, and I much prefer the informal Chris than the formal Chris. <laughs> so my my first uh, memory of Chris was we so Colin Schwartz started the Omaha Real Estate Meetup, and at first uh, it's moved around a little bit, but the first place I remember seeing Chris at was Viz Major, which is a brewery in uh, in kind of like Field Club area in Omaha, which is Midtown ish. And I remember seeing him there, and he always wore a suit whenever he showed up. And he's got some <laughs> fancy, like, coiffed hair. And, Usually uh, some really fancy buckle shoes. Yeah. Like brown yeah. buckles or oh, something wow. like that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, 60-year-old. Perfect a, perfect hair going up. Uh-huh. Yep. And I was like. The Fonz. And, and so he'd show up, and everybody, and Colin's in, like, Under Armour, uh, like, <laughs> tech tee and sweatshorts, whatever. I'm like, this this is an eclectic group, evidently. Was that Ben Catter or Colin? No, that was, well, yeah, that, that also. So anyway, but then I remember seeing Chris, and I'm like, who's this fancy guy that keeps showing up? And he'd, like, come in and be like, look at me, like a peacock, and then, and then, and then he's gone, like, an hour later. <laughs> and then, so that's my first memory of Chris, and I was always kind of like, who, who is this mystery? man well, with the suits like a peacock it's important you show up you flare your feathers and then you leave immediately yeah People yeah understand that you're was, there. like he did an irish goodbye well also known as the peacock goodbye now i'm trying to recall the exact moment but uh, one of my first memories with you was you were looking at a single family house in north omaha that had some foundation issues and you wanted my opinion on the foundation i believe i met you through jerry schlickburn originally mm -hmm. yep and and then you came in. We're gonna flip this. I think Chris Bauer was your agent on that one. Oh wow! And uh, and I'm like, I'm, so I'll go. I'm, and I'm like, dude, do not buy this. And and I go, it's got foundation issues. This is. I go, this 
I go, the money you're paying is not going to work. And you're like, nope, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I don't think that one worked out really well. Good for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I Actually, I remember that one. It, yeah. ended up, it ended up working out. Did it? Yeah, it, it really did. You had did. some headaches with that. Oh, I had headaches, no yeah. question. Yeah, I think I, I actually, honestly, I lucked out there because of the market. So I, I lucked out a little bit uh, getting into my first deal and having the market help me out on a couple mistakes, no question. And then, uh, and then one of my fondest memories of the of the early days, and I had to say this is what six years ago now, five six years. Oh, I'm sure. And yeah. was because uh, yeah. you were one of the first clients I worked with, and the uh, oh man, what was that? Uh, so radio edit. Okay. <laughs> One of my fond, uh, first memories was the moment that uh, we were going around looking at properties for probably about a month. And every time we went to a property, and I talked about this on Colin's podcast, uh, Colin was there. And we thought Colin was the real estate agent. That's awesome. And then and, – because he always showed up. And he actually dressed pretty back then too because <laughs> he was coming from work. I mean, not, oh, I thought this was – I thought this was the other way around. I no, thought no. I thought you were – okay. So. I didn't know. I had no idea who Colin was. Okay. But we thought – he was real estate agent, and we kept on going to his properties, and we were looking at something that was in little outside of Little Italy over there, mm-hmm. uh, down by mm-hmm. Lawrence and Gardens. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a multi. And uh, I was talking to him outside, and eventually it came out that he was uh, an investor looking at the property. And for the last few weeks, because I, I, I approached him, I'm like, dude, I go, how do you get all these uh, all these investment listings? He's like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm, I'm here to try to buy him. And then I ran upstairs. I'm like, I'm like, Chris, that guy we've been talking to downstairs, <laughs> he's not a real estate agent. He's an investor. <laughs> we've been telling him all this information. Here's what we offered. What do you, like, what do you think it's worth? And I think Chris is huh, like, interesting. I want a piece of one that's getting all the deals behind That's us. exactly what happened. That's a, that, yep, because we were, you know, we're talking to him about the numbers and everything like that. And, I, and man, talk about bad real estate rookie 101 issues I was having. Well, I mean, maybe, but I mean, I took advantage of that and I just partnered with him on that exact deal. <laughs> oh God, that's how, how ties change. Yeah, but here, but here's why. On that, first off, let me rewind real quick about this peacocking. Um, <laughs> I was coming from my law job as an attorney. Oh, sorry right? yeah. for the people who said Owens just holding back. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to apologize, but you, I mean, I'm sure that's not the first time you apologize in this podcast. Probably but I, not. But I, but. I, it was not like I like rolled out of bed and said, I can't wait to go to the meetup. I'm going to throw on a suit. I was literally coming from work, and at work, I was an attorney. So that is why. Now, the peacock thing I can't handle. I mean, when you've been working out and you're looking good, stuff happens. But it was an accident <laughs> that I was overdressed because I was literally coming from work. For those of you not watching the video on this, because apparently it doesn't exist yet, uh, <laughs> Chris refused outright. The only guest we've ever had that outright refused to wear the headphones, and he claims it's not because of his hair. But uh, I mean, look at his hair. Uh, <laughs> no, it, look, it, maybe it is it would, nice. Maybe well, it would mess up my hair. I will wear them if I need to, but it's just kind of you know I don't need to. We'll have a ten. We'll have a ten minute little <laughs> video on our Facebook Ria page, Omaha Ria, if you guys want to see it. So we'll we'll post something on there. A little little. It's not my little hair. snippet. It's not my hair. It's, it's it, it brings me out of my element. So speaking of being out of your element, so you were a practicing attorney Mm -hmm. for a number of years. Like, how did you get into law originally? I went to law school, Owen. Oh, well, that makes sense. (laughs) That's how they do it. Went to school for seven years. I'm no dummy. Uh, I did. And maybe I was a dummy for doing that. Um, Honestly, what happened was that I I got out of uh, high school and I was getting ready. I was recruited to play football. Okay, so I had to make a decision on football. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I wanted to play football. And at that time, 
I'm not going to say the NFL was in my mind, but the only thing I really was passionate about was football. So I chose, I tried to make an educated decision and choose uh, my football route to coincide with what would make sense with after football, because I can't say that I expected to be in the NFL. So I went to undergrad at Augustana. It was a D2 football program. It was a really good program. And I played football. And I did re- I did really well at school. In fact, I did. What position were you? So I was recruited as a quarterback, and I went as a quarterback, and I played quarterback, but I was second string, basically. The guy that I came in with, you know, the first couple of years you red shirt and you're, you know, whatever. But then when it was time for where I would probably start, the guy that I was recruited with was a, a very good quarterback. He was from that city of Sioux Falls, and, and he was a good quarterback, and he kind of got the nod for the position. So I was second string. So because of that, they moved me to receiver. And so I did start at wide receiver. While I also played section quarterback and and I was a punt returner and I I held field goals I kind of did whatever. Um, now, did the guy that uh, was first string ahead of you, did he have an all time uh, state record in high school for not. anything? He did uh, not. Would you mind describing what you might still hold? I mean, well, you have to still hold it. You, you, it's unbreakable. You brought it up, so I guess we can talk. Yeah, about let's it. talk about it. Uh, I, 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 it's a good icebreaker. I always like to say I have a national record that can never be broken for, for high school football. I have a 99-yard touchdown run. What stinks is that I always knew— It was a quarterback sneak. Is this right? It was a quarterback right? sneak. It was in Glenwood. It was, it's, we were literally inches from the goal line, and, and we just needed to get a little bit of— Breathing like, room for your punter. Something. <laughs> and so uh, it was a quarterback sneak. And uh, I, it, it's kind of hilarious to look back on— on it now because I it, I don't nobody touched me, so I literally just everyone kind of moved around. I did a quarterback sneak through one of the gaps and I just ran for ninety nine yards. And it can't be beat. Now it's always a fun icebreaker, and I knew that I kn- there's a, a many of people that tied that with me. However, recently there was some like Google search or something I had to do for a business or a job or whatever, and I Google searched it, and one of the things that came up was the longest runs in Iowa history. And I was like, oh, cool, I'm going to be on there. So I looked on there, and there are like already like 300 other people. <laughs> I mean, it's not 300, but it's at least 100 people in Iowa who have a 99-yard run. So do you have any video of yours? I have it still. I don't I don't know where it is on VHS. We'll link, to it, we'll link to it in the show notes. Oh, if I could find a VHS <laughs> It's a pretty fun story. But uh, so, yeah, I, he, no, he did not have that national record. So I don't know why he got that spot. Anyway, yeah, it's he, kind of BS. He's a beast, actually. He's a, he's a, he's a good player. So um, played all that stuff, whatever, did my thing. Uh, I was successful at football in school, uh, but, you know, I was an undergrad major in sociology. And that was on purpose. It's kind of laughed upon. And I don't mean that against any other sociology majors, but there is – I would guess if you were to high-level look at sociology majors, there's probably 10% who, like – care about the social aspects of life. And there are about 90% who's like, I don't know what my major should be. I should just major in sociology, especially if you're an athlete. That was not me. I had a great teacher in Mr. Drake at Lewis Central. He retires this year. Um, you still keep in touch with him, huh? Uh, when every time I see him, I can. I've told him the story 13 times. The reason I majored in sociology is because of you. I really, I, I dug the aspect. But however, at the end of college, it was like, what am I going to do? Like, what sociology major, like, what am I going to do? And I, I wasn't so passionate that I wanted to go that route. And I was like, well, I should just go to law school, which is a weird thing to say, but that's what I did. Did you do that? Do you think because you were postponing the decision on what you actually wanted to do? Or were you like, I'm really, I want to go into law. I mean, not, yeah. I don't, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but like, 
I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do until, I mean, yeah. I still don't know what I want to do. Yeah, I <laughs> You know what I mean? Like you're expected to know your career path and everything when you're 18 years old or 20 years old when you yep. finally elect. And it's like, I, I switched majors three times. I went to four different colleges. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I did, I did not switch majors. I did not switch colleges, but you're right. I had no idea what I do. I didn't know what I wanted to do until I was in the thirties. But, um, yeah, I, I just, it was probably like uh, 75%. I knew I wanted to go to law school. I think I, I, I think that I had the attributes that would help me be successful. And there was probably 25% was like real life. Uh, let's just go to law school. <laughs> Now, let's peel back this a little bit and talk about uh, – you went into um, the military for a bit, right? Yeah. So talk about that. How did you get into it originally? What uh, what you know branch of the service were you? Yeah, so I think I lucked out a little bit because um, I, I, you know, I, I feel as though looking back on what I've done – and, and I'm only 38, but like for, for the majority of my life, I was just trying to make things work. And I think I had a great upbringing and I think I had great um, – head on my shoulders or I was raised well. So I was trying to be nice and do what I could. And, but I, I also just wanted to make sure what I was doing would work. So probably go to law school was probably better than what my other options were. Uh, when I was in law school, uh, I was a, a, approached by, you know, the, the army and they said, we can do this, this, and this for you. And I was like, you know what? I don't know where I'll be after the law school is done, but it'd be fun to be an attorney for the military and travel around and, and and practice. And then you can either stay in and retire. At that time, I was like, oh my gosh, I can retire at age 44. And I was so excited. And, and it was also like, maybe I missed a little of the camaraderie of college sports. And so I was like, you know, this would be a lot of fun to, to join the military as an attorney, make decent money. You start off a, li- a couple ranks higher than you probably should, and you make some money. And so that is why I chose to do it. Hmm. But it, didn't, it did not work out that way. How did it work out? Well, you learn quickly that when you sign up for the military, you are an asset of the military. And, you know, looking back, I'm not, you know, I'm not throwing shade necessarily at the military, but like any other employee, if you will, if you're not good at your job or they need another job a little more and you're already there, they may move you over there. And that's what happened to me. I graduated law school. I passed the bar exam. Uh, I, I was also, I also owed time to the military. I owed two years to the military. I actually owed four years at the time. But you uh, negotiated because you went to law school. That comes later. You, 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 <laughs> learned, comes later. you learned some slick negotiating techniques. I think it helped. Uh, <laughs> timing helped a little bit too. But I got out and I said, okay, I'm ready to roll. Let's be an attorney somewhere. And they said, you know what? Thank you. And uh, we paid for two years of your law school. But we don't need an attorney right now. We need a logistics officer. So they just made me a logistics officer. And of course, that was crushing and life-changing. And I had no idea what happened. I think they tried to make it up to me. I'm giving them some credit. I don't think they really care about my feelings, uh, but they did station me in Hawaii, which is pretty sweet. And that's really like your favorite vacation spot now, right? I just got back. You just got weeks. back just from got Hawaii. Back. Uh, I've been there like two This is time. life imitating art, imitating life. It, it's, <laughs> uh, I, I just got back for like two weeks. I've been there two, three, four times since. It's my favorite place uh, in the world. I didn't believe in a SAD. It's not seasonal affective disorder. I forgot what, the, what that's Yeah, saying. yeah. That's what I thought it was. It's actually like, anyway, basically it means that you're happy or sad depending on the weather. And I remember growing up in the Midwest, I was like, I love the seasons and that's just a bunch of bogus stuff for people to make excuses on why they don't feel well. I'm telling you, when I went to Hawaii, of course I was upset about my job because I wasn't an attorney. 
And I had to figure out the crazy logistics of moving here and stuff being boated over, and I don't have any shirts. And it's it was milk costs like twenty dollars a it gallon. Was crazy. <laughs> I was not happy. However, every day it was impossible to wake up and be upset. I'll never forget. I was in the hotel that I'd stay in for sixty days before I could find a place, and I was watching the weather. This is a real story, and it said like Monday seventy five degrees, Tuesday seventy four degrees. Wednesday, frigid, 70 degrees. And I was like, you have to be kidding me. Frigid is 70? So I was happy every day, but I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. So <laughs> Weird story. Yeah. Weird story. So then I got out. So long story short, or that's it's still a long story, uh, I ended up just basically doing my time, and that's that whole four-year, two-year thing you said. My uh, girlfriend at the time, who actually at the time became my fiance, Shivani, she got she moved with me, which was tough for her because we met in grad school. So when I was in law school, am I talking too much? No, let's hear you. I've been told a million. I mean, times you're the guest. Yeah. So and I, I'm used it's all to, about you today. I'm used to billing every six minutes, so th- th- I'm going to drag this out. <laughs> Let a us know bit. what we owe you. This is going to be a three hour episode, apparently. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll cut this short, but it's a lot. So um, she moved there with me. We were, you know, we were still uh, dating at the time, but but serious. And she moved there with me. We had met while I was in law school. In the morning, I would do the military. Throughout the day, I would do law school. And during just, the night, you did the wife stuff. No, I well, that's how I met my wife. Uh, but at the time, I went to grad school and I got my master's in negotiation. And so. Creighton offered a program where you could go to law school and at the same time go to grad school at night. And that is where I met my wife now, Shivani. And so we graduated that and she moved to Hawaii with me. Now, she's an attorney also. She's an attorney and she also has her master's in negotiation. Is she still attorney to this day? No. Uh, no she start, Well, she is. she's licensed to practice, but she stopped practicing in 2008, helped with uh, our children that we have, two children now, and – as soon as they're old enough to go to school or whatever, I'm, I'm sure she'll get back into the swing of things. So, um, no pressure. <laughs> no, she doesn't have to. Uh, but uh, she's uh, she moved with me, which is you know tough because she pl- she planned on going to law school. So the full circle. The reason I'm bringing that up is that we were in the military. I I thought I had to be there for four years. I was stressed out the whole time. I'm like this is a joke. Like why am I here? <laughs> I have a law degree. And not that I'm too good, but it's like, why are you using me as a logistics officer? Long story short, she gets into law school. She basically was like, Chris, I'm tired of this lifestyle. I'm going to apply to law school. She gets into Creighton, and that is when I said, hey, Army, you said I'd be an attorney. I'm not. I don't owe you four years. I owe you two years because you only help with two years. And they said, eh, you're probably right. So they let me out. It was that easy. I mean, it took a long time with paperwork and a bunch of stuff, but... Do you think it's a, it's a coincidence that there is so many real estate investors that we interview on this podcast that come from the military background? We've we've almost I think we've had about ten, like roughly a ten out of fifty. So I would say yeah, you know twenty percent. Yeah, I mean that's a lot. That's yeah. But now, did you, so you ended up getting your law degree and you went into uh, you hung your shingle with a firm that. Like, how does this work? So I know in in the medical field, mm-hmm. you get a, you know, you get your doctorate and then you get matched and yep. then you have to like choose a specialty or whatever. Right. right. So is that how it is? And not at when all. When you're in law school, it, you're it, like, if, I want to divorce people. Is it, that what you said? If I, <laughs> if I could push my opinion, which doesn't matter, but I, I think that the doctor route, although I think would be stressful, I think it's a smarter route. 
because everyone graduates medical school as a doctor. There's no specialization. They just, they're a doctor. And then they choose to go into residency, which is tough because that's a two, three, four, and then maybe a fellowship afterwards. But that whole time of residency and fellowship, they're specializing in a certain area or two. Um, whereas an attorney, you just graduate law school and they say, there you go. Like, get out there and be somebody. And so you might be a criminal defense attorney. You might be a divorce attorney. You might be a whatever. And you don't have any really experience, whereas the purpose of med school is to, to build that experience or residency and fellowships to build that experience. How long did you – okay, so you, you became a divorce attorney right out of school. No, no. no? I, I, so I got that – so I got – so here's the funny thing. I, I got out of – I got out of law school. I'm sorry. I got out of the military and I moved back home. I was 30. And I had no job. And I said, hey, mom, is there room in your basement still? Uh, <laughs> and I'm engaged at the time. So I'm like, I am the catch of the catch of all catches, right? I'm 30 engaged. I'm living in my mom's basement. And with, with, with your fiance? No, no, not at all. She was at home. She was with her parents okay. because she was in law school uh, at that time. So I get there and I could not find a job. I applied to. 50, I'm not exaggerating, at least 40 different law firms. How, time stamp this for us. What, what? 2013. Okay. Got out of the military. I was, I was in from 2000. I was in from January of 2010. I was in from August of 2010 through February of 2013. Can I ask, how many tours did you do during that? Did, did you go overseas? Overseas? No, I didn't. Really? Uh, I was, I should have gone over twice. And yeah. So what happened is I got there. And a buddy of mine who I just made friends with, I literally landed. It was so stressful because Shivani chose to come with me in the middle of her life. We weren't even engaged. And we landed. And I'm not exaggerating. Like two weeks into landing, living in a hotel, they said, hey, Chris, you're deploying to Afghanistan next month. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to tell Shivani this. <laughs> um, and a buddy of mine, literally same day, came up to me. He was in that meeting. He was in the same position as me, but just at a, a different platoon. He came over and said, uh, I'll take it, Chris, because you make more money. And he had already gone on two deployments, and he liked it. And his family liked it. He was married, whatever. So he took that from me like two weeks in, took it from me. And then when I was getting out, when I said, can I get out now? I was literally the head of the battalion like logistics. So I was helping a 1,000 battalion, a 1,000 soldier battalion prepare for deployment. So if they would have said no – I was literally I was going to Afghanistan two months later, and so they God said, man, uh, like nuts. can you imagine how different your life would I have be? Like no you, clue. I mean, I you probably wouldn't be married to Shivani. I'd be very scary. Yeah, th yeah. I mean, yeah that that'd be. I don't like thinking it's about it. It's so, it's so yeah, I know. Yeah. It's so funny looking back now, like how little things can just end up being a huge. You know, swing in your uh, in your life. Two of my best friends uh, serve. One's a medevac pilot awesome. for the, for the army, and the other one's a marine. And they, uh, I think they both done five tours now, and just here, and they're still in to this day, twenty two and twenty four years in. Wow. And I, I, I'm here. I hear the stories all the time. So I, I can imagine how that would have been life changing for you. It's it is a uh, it is sincerely a sacrifice, and I, I you know. Although and, I, and, and, and by the way, let's not discount this. I mean, we, we appreciate your service so much. And, and thank you for doing what you do. And I know that you give back to your, your – I, I know personally that you do a lot for the people that you served with. Yeah. No, right? I appreciate you and, saying that. So. And, I, and I appreciate the, the recognition. Um, you know, there's an internal struggle because every time someone says that to me, 
I'm like, man, I now I wish I would have deployed so I could really. Yeah, yeah. Now I could really. Imposter syndrome the, yeah, kicks in. I, I feel bad, but um, it was certainly a sacrifice. If it, if that's not apparent to the story here, like I had, this was not part of my plan, and I and I did it, and it changed. You know, it could have. You know, whatever changed my life for the negative or positive, but uh, I, I appreciate you saying that. I don't. I don't think you should discount it. I mean, you did. You did your service, and however the way your service went is the way your service went. Logi- I appreciate you saying that. Lo- logic would tell you that, but like. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Because immediately you start thinking when somebody gives you a compliment, you start thinking of like, yeah, I get it. But there's people out that I know personally that have done way more than me or what, whatever. There's there's somebody in the Marines that's been on like two tours in yeah. Afghanistan that's seen live fire. And like yeah. I, if I say, oh, like, oh, wow, I didn't deploy. And you know what I mean? Like you probably have that. Like everybody does. Well, we when, struggle with compliments so much. I mean, I, you and I, are we struggle with compliments. Big well, that's time. because nobody compliments you both. Well, I, I yeah because it's so unexpected. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> I actually get one, and I'm like, what? The, what do I do with this thing? It's like a grenade, which is which you would know if you deployed to a foreign oh, country like Afghanistan. Yeah. So it's an internal struggle, but but to be honest, man, way to bring it around back around. Uh, honestly, though, like it's it, it's a little, it's not really a, a fair thing to do to yourself because. What I'd like to do is say thank you when someone says that and know that I went through a firefight and I had all this crazy stuff going yeah. on. But that is quite the tax on your life. That's probably nothing that somebody would actually choose. So maybe I'm lucky. We should all be thankful. There are different levels of thanks. Service. There's also give. different levels of service, though, yeah. too. Yeah. I had a roommate that I roomed with for a while, and his job was to watch the volcanoes for the Air Force. <laughs> and his only job was literally he just watched the, the volcanoes explode, the yeah. plumes go up, and he alerted the aircraft when, when, the, air, when the volcanoes went off. That okay. Was okay, but and he like, was, and he was the, the other the low. other eight years of <laughs> like non activity. Be like, yep, eight eight a.m. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pacific time, no activity. I mean, but everybody's got a job. Every, I mean, in any any type of business or structure or whatever, I mean, everybody's got something to do. Yeah. You can't be the guy firing the gun every time because yeah. you, in your case, you used your brain. You you organized a thousand people. Fair. Right, logistics Fair. is just as important as the front line because there would be no front line without logistics. No, I mean I, I appreciate you saying that. I'm just admitting an internal struggle, but you're right. Prime example that. is there would be no podcast without the producer. So, <laughs> well done. Uh, well, well, well played. Done. Well played. Yeah. Well, well done. <laughs> All right, so Chris, what? Uh, got you involved in real estate investing like how you like where did this come from it seems like left field you're yeah. you went to law school you were in the military you met your now wife um she moved for you like you all made sacrifices like why why even mess around with real estate i, I read rich dad poor dad in 2008 uh during my either first or second year of law school and i said this makes so much sense but by the way i was already you know deep into law school okay the fact that i know you let me ask you this question uh, you read Rich Dad Poor Dad, but was your was your father, which was a, a crucial part in your investing mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. was he real estate investing before that? No, but okay, good. No, he was not, but he certainly was had been interested for like twenty years. So, can I ask the question? How did your dad get involved in real estate? Uh, it ties into a little bit of how I did, right? So, can you re- tell that story? Yeah, 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 no question. So, two thousand eight, I read the book and I was like. This makes sense. But going to the military in the morning and law school during the day and then uh, grad school at night, it's like, when am I going to invest? And by the way, law school is terrible. So you don't feel like you had time to do it. And so I, I kind of put it on the back burner. And then I went to the military. I did a lot of things. Then I got out of the military, 
couldn't find a job, finally got a job. Uh, I, I would go into, I, I mean, I've told this story before, but I'm, I'm serious. Like I'd go into uh, interviews and they're like, what's your experience? I'm like, oh, I can, I can paint my face and I can kill people, but I've never done loss. I've never done law stuff. I have a law degree. I, I, I'm pa- I passed the bar, but I can't do anything. And they said, okay, th- thanks anyway. Someone finally gave me a chance in Council Bluffs. Um, I was there. I was only there for four months, but I got a chance to do every area of law that you can think of. And imme- that was not the right place for me. But as soon as I got those, that, it's funny, that four months of experience, I then applied to a national law firm that did family law. That is the job I got into uh, October of 2013. Um, I'll tie this back to my dad right now. I got that job. Uh, it's a huge national offer. At the time, uh, there was like 33 states and two, 300 attorneys, and now they're way bigger. Um, but during my first year, out of the 300 attorneys and probably only 50, 60, 70 uh, new attorneys, I won an award of Rookie of the Year out of the whole country. Now, how do you get that award? Um, best hair? Best hair. Usually best hair. Uh, best but, muscles and best face. <laughs> There's three <laughs> metrics they use. But let's get real though. You're you're probably one of the most detailed analytic person I've ever met. I don't. I appreciate you saying that. I don't necessarily think that I agree with the way they measure some things because it could make you do things in your law job to to appease these metrics. Mm-hmm. However, the, the the intent and the thought behind it makes complete sense. Of course, it's how much you bill, but that's not it. It is six minutes every six minutes, right? It's every six minutes. Yeah. yeah. But it's also how much is collected. But let's get the numbers out of the way. It's literally how did you do on all of our client satisfaction reviews? They would literally they'd randomly call your current and past clients and say, What do you think about the way he did on these 10 things? And then they would look at your notes that you took. Because every case you're taking notes, right? So you're putting into the system. And the purpose of that is if you ever need to look back at it and say, what's going on this day? What's going on this issue? Or what if I have to leave? What if I get fired or whatever? Someone can come in and take over your case. And they'd have people come into your notes and make sure it was super legitimate. And so they'd measure you on a bunch of metrics and then they'd give you an overall score. And that got me rookie of the year. Now, that doesn't matter. It does matter. It's a, it's a well, big I'm accolade. glad that I got it because yeah. what it helped me do is it helped me realize that when I won that award and I got a small bonus, and then the second year, I got second attorney in the entire country. So as a rookie, you're your rookies, so you're competing against 30 or 40. Then I got second attorney in the entire country, my second year. And I got like a little bit more of a bonus. And I a tad bit of a raise on salary. And that is when I said, I'm already at the ceiling. This is a this is bogus. I have like 30 bosses and I'm I'm doing everything they've asked so much that I've gotten an award where I'm supposedly not the smartest, but the all those metrics, the best in the country. Now is the time to look back at Rich Dad Poor Dad in 2008 and do something about it. Because if I'm already at the ceiling, there's nowhere to go. And that's when I was like, Dad. You want to start that thing you've been thinking about for 20 years? And that's how it started. Now, did he ever... So here's my question. So Vince is your dad. Yep. Did he ever 
did you guys sit down and talk about this? Like his uh, unscratched itch that he had with real estate investing uh, before before this all happened? I knew, yeah. I mean, it had come in passing. I knew he was excited about it, but um, my dad's amazing at manual. He can do anything. He could build you a house out of pine needles and gum. <laughs> He's like MacGyver. He is MacGyver. He, in fact, the reason I know the show MacGyver is because of my dad. So he, he's amazing at that stuff. I feel personally attacked for being old and knowing what MacGyver That's like the show you watch when you were I, like I watched There's a MacGyver remake. Okay, wait, just I watched <laughs> MacGyver religiously. So don't, I, I'm going to go All with right, you on the age Thanks, Ted. <laughs> thanks. Uh, never, never heard of it. <laughs> Denless. No, he also listens. is the only music stop, he ever knows. Michael stop, Jackson stop, comes to town. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you you let the cat out of the bag there, buddy. Stop, stop, stop. Yeah. Came to like Michael Jackson's the only American music I knew. Oh my god. Awesome. You would never let that go. No, I love it. <laughs> so let me let me tell you. Um the reason I bring up Vince is because uh I didn't know that. I, I just assumed that Vince was doing real estate investing for 10, 15 years, and he had this portfolio, and that's what got you involved. So I, I, I'm i completely learning something new right now. I love yeah. It. No, I mean. You got him involved. Uh, you maybe, pushed him. Yeah, I pushed him. It probably helped him a little bit instead of me coming to him as a 20-year-old in law school or you know, 23-year-old in law school to come in as an attorney and be like, I'm ready to do this. Here are the things I've learned through podcast. I mean, I was, you know, podcasts and books and calling someone like Ted. Seriously, like. Here's what we should do. Let's do it. And he he agreed to start going on some walks of properties. And so that's how it started. And you guys started buying single families in Council Bluffs, right? We did. Our first single family home was purchased in Council Bluffs in 2013. Yep. And and we did everything ourselves. Of course, MacGyver wants to do that, right? And he's smart. Um, and so we, I, I'm telling you... Uh, much to my father's dismay, I am the least manly person you probably know. Like, <laughs> what I'm good at is doing my hair. Uh, what I'm not good at is laying flooring and changing toilets. And I maybe I could be, but I don't like it. And I, I was, I just um, didn't like it. I'm in the same boat as you. I, I, there's things I can do, and then on the few, first few properties I had, I did the landscaping. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that was like just trying to figure out what you, you like. Shook out some mulch. I, I, I felt <laughs> no, I I felt like I was doing something, you know, because I was doing the landscaping in the project, but really I didn't do shit. I I, I didn't <laughs> I, but we didn't know any better, and we started doing everything ourselves. And the house turned out fantastic. Now, why why did you buy that house, and what was it? Can you tell us a little more? Sure. Like, do you remember what you bought it for? Yeah, you'll respect this. It was in Wildwood and Council Bluffs. Yeah, uh, septic which, systems probably. Oh, terrible! That ended up being a problem. Uh, but it was in the Lewis Central District. I went to high school at Lewis Central. It was in that district. I knew of the neighborhood. I had friends and family that lived there. Like I knew it would be a good opportunity. Um, and so we bought it and we started working on the project. And like it took us – that house took us 14 or 15 months until it was just ready for a renter. That makes me feel so much better on my first property. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. Well, here's why though. Like You were surrounding yourself with people who kind of maybe knew some stuff. Like, it was me and my dad. And so we would fix it and fix it and update it and fix it. We were doing a job. But by the way, I was a full-time attorney. He was still at work doing his full-time job as a network technician at, I think it was Quest at the time, um, CenturyLink now. So, like, there was no time. So maybe some nighttime stuff or certainly all weekend. But it took a long time. And then I – so it worked, right? So the whole birth thing, that's mm -hmm. what we did. Refinance, whatever, it works. Perfect. But people don't know the bird method is. Can you tell what that is? Uh, buy, uh, rehab, 
uh, rent, refinance, repeat. Yep. So basically just take a property, buy a property for $60,000, put $20,000 into it, go to the bank and say, hey, bank, this is worth $100,000. do not you think so? And the bank says, yeah, it's worth 100 So they give you an 80% loan. Well, that's $80,000, and that's all I put into the property. So I get all $80,000 back. I pay off the first bank. I pay off the money I put into the property. And now I own the property for $0. It's a free roll after that. It's a free roll. It took a lot of work, and it makes a lot of sense. And there's some risk to it, no question, especially now when interest rates are going up. And I'm sure we'll get into what's going on right now. But there's some risk. But that's, to me, the smartest way to do it. It took us 14 months. And then we moved on to our next one, and that took us like 10 months. And then we moved on to our next one. That took us 11 months. So four years later, 2017, is when I owned four single-family homes, all making us maybe two to $300 a month in passive cash flow. Passive. We still manage it ourselves. But four years, and you're talking like $1,000. And by the way, I'm splitting that with my dad. But that was a college lesson. College lesson. Looking back on it, there's so much, so many quicker ways to do it. But no, that, that's how I got into it. And in 2017 – you know, I wanted to surprise my father and say, I think we can do this a little quicker. Uh, and I didn't tell him because, of course, if I told him that, he <laughs> get a story of this. Because Chris, Chris hits me up on this duplex. He's looking at in South Omaha. And I'm like, I'm like, don't buy this. And, we, and I thought we moved on. But then he went and bought it. <laughs> <laughs> and Pro- but through you probably no he didn't it was that it was that duplex that, that one that the city came on on, on South I know Pachin. which one you're talking yeah. about but hold on let's rewind for a second you got, you got the, you you were a part of it and then I didn't include you no because I told you not to buy it okay you bought it through the guys out of California that uh what what were their names they they uh, I know Josh Miller Josh Miller you bought it through the Miller's. oh yeah. And then you're like, you're like, t- then he brought me in, and you're like, hey, I, I got some, I need just uh, some advice on this. And I'm like, dude, you bought this had mold and it had city issues, right? For like sixty five k. And uh, and I'm like, don't do this, don't do this. And then you're like, and like, don't tell my dad that about this property. <laughs> 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 I did this without him. Yeah. And then you, you I mean, you did a couple like that too. Yep. You were trying to build this other thing. You're like, yep. you had this bigger vision. And and then you brought your dad in later. And then what was his response when you started bringing him in? So I mean, he he is very, very smart. And he also is very, it's very difficult to convince to change his mind. And so I knew if I brought him there and said, do you want to buy this? The answer would be no. And then it would never happen. So my goal was, and it worked, is that I wanted to just simply do it and then bring him a project study of this just happened. Here's the white papers, dad. Here's exactly how it happened. And dad, to help you retire earlier and to start doing seven homes a year, let's do this route. So it wasn't like I was like trying to hide anything from him. I just wanted him to see that it worked because I know at that time, that's the only way he would trust me. Now, my dad's one of, you know, other than the huge institutional people, family offices that give us really large checks, my dad's invested in every single deal we've done, which means a lot to me because at first he would have never trusted me with $17 to go in there and buy a duplex. So I'm glad it worked out. I, I love that inspiration because, I, I mean, I'd love to get my parents involved in starting doing some flips and, and, and kind of change their life cycle too. So that's definitely one of my goals. But I, but I, I just – that was a fond memory of mine. Like don't tell my dad. I'm, I'm building this up. <laughs> And then, and then I remember, I remember it was like shortly down the road. You're like, yep, I got my dad involved and I'm going to get him retired. So Chris, yeah, you, that's exactly it, man. I'm, yeah. That's awesome. You remember that. Yeah, Cause that was a, that was important to me. There, there's a lot. Um, and I'm sorry, Colin. No, continue your uh, nostalgia. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm, sit over Colin. here. Yeah. I said, Colin. Mm. 
Let's not radio. Radio. Let's not radio. Let's radio. I'm sorry. Let me let me finish this. So, um, but though, I mean, those were. I mean, those memories were so impactful for me back then. Like, uh, like it was. I mean, because you were the first big investor I worked with, mm-hmm. and 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 there was lots of things. I mean, I was so new. I was learning right alongside with you. And and so there's there so many of those little memories that were really there's a, there's a big a po- deal to me. Ted, there's a possibility that I that me getting started would have been a little bit longer had you not been around, because one of the things that you offered, and I know you do now at, at a at, as a uh, with more experience, you have, I have, but what you offered at that time was someone to lean on, and you were more than an agent, and that's what bothers me about agents, and not all agents. There are some awesome agents. Um, but it's really easy to say that house is for sale. I saw it on the MLS. Will you buy it? How much will it rent for? I don't know. How much rehab is needed? I don't know. And it's like, well, Put some work why, into it. why are you, why do I, why do I need you? Ted, you said, here's what it's worth. And you told me not to buy it, but here's what you did say. If you do buy it, here's how much it'll cost to fix this. Here's how much it'll cost to fix this. Once you're done, it may be worth this and you could possibly rent it for this. Well, shh. I mean, that is what I needed to hear to start making those decisions that I'm teaching myself this stuff. But I was learning right along with you. I mean, you're giving me the same input because you're asking the questions and I, and I had to learn it. Yeah. Well, you went out and learned it. Yep. And I had a good mentor, Jerry. It's like, oh, this, it backed me up. It's like, nope, this is how you do it. And this is how you do it. Yeah, anyway. it's awesome. I think uh, the big disconnect between a lot of newer investors and those that have kind of scaled the mountain and done some bigger things and, you know, hundreds of units and and all that, like, how do you, so you described basically four years of your life where you took a long time on rehabs to get properties repositioned and refinanced out. You involved your your, uh, dad uh, who believed in the concept and decided to trust you a little bit in the beginning. How do you parlay that into scaling to a point where you don't need to do them one at a time and, and roll up your sleeves and swing a hammer? Like what, what was the thing that happened to you where you were able to approach your dad and say, I think we can do this faster. What, what was that? Well, four years in and four single family homes was not going to get me out of my job. By the way, I don't think we even talked about it, but the full-time job I got with that national firm and then the next job that I went into at Nebraska Legal Group, it's, it was nine years of just family law. So I got to do the thing that only about three or 5% is a statistic, three or 5% of attorneys actually get to do, which is go to court. So that's kind of cool, I guess. I had no idea it was that low. It's so low. A lot of them are just reviewing stuff for you, which I'm not saying just. It's extremely important. And we right now, we pay a lot of those attorneys to review a lot of stuff for us, and we couldn't do anything without them. But I got to do those fun things, but I was like, this is miserable. First off, I already hit that ceiling. Second in the country. Thanks a lot for nothing. And then next (laughs) – seriously. And then next, it was like, I hate this job. And if I'm capped out and I hate the job, what can I do to get into this? And so I think it was just important for me to be like – what I learned from that was after teaching myself so much is that I need to start partnering with people. I need to give up more of the pie. I need to say I can learn this all myself, four houses in four years, or I can start giving up pieces of the pie to people to teach me how to do it and accelerate how quickly I'm doing it. I find it really interesting you say that. So you you consciously made that decision and then went on kind of like a semi- 
hunt for somebody that fit the criteria you were looking for all over the in place. a partner it, because I had a I had a similar situation on the opposite side with uh with Brandon who you know yeah. we all know like I'm just what was what what did you do after that when you said I have I can't do this on my own I'm super busy I have a, a you know family life and what were the missing gaps for you? And everybody's different. I realize that, yeah. but let's explore partnerships for a bit and see what you, uh, what you can share. Well, I think my dad inadvertently made it easy because I knew that he would not listen to a word I said if I tried to bring this concept <laughs> to him. So I tried to learn it on my own. And I said, was he I, kind of a lone wolf, uh, in, in most things? Did he not believe in partner? almost everything? Yeah. If, yeah. Okay. And he, and I, he's extremely smart, extremely accountable. So through all of his jobs, like if someone said, Vince, we need this done, it was getting done. Now, the problem with Vince is that he will do it all himself, but he'll get it done. Sounds familiar. Yeah, right. So what I learned was uh, I, if I can't go to – I had no money. Yes, I was an attorney, but by the way, second in the country, they were not paying very much. It was a joke. And I had no money to go out and buy homes. I, my, my wife was in law school. Like we, we had nowhere. Yeah. So I had – I learned right away by necessity, I don't even have money. So now I have to go find the money. I had to go borrow money from a family member to buy that first duplex that Ted told me not to. <laughs> uh, so I had to go borrow money. And then I said, well, I'm not only am I terrible at rehabs, but I can't trust my dad to help because he doesn't know about it. So I need to hire out rehabs. And it was all necessity to just, if I want to get this done as quickly as possible, who can I surround myself to help myself? So what did you do next? How did you, how did you figure that out? Actually, the first house we ever bought was on 24th Street here in town here. It was a single family home off 24th and Blondo. Mm, oh, yeah. Uh, I bought it, did it in two months. Full rehab. Full rehab. Trusted. Con- con- concrete in the, in the, in the, dumped down the toilet lines, if I remember right. Uh, it did at one point. Yeah. yeah. And I had to fix that. It was a mess. But when you buy a house for $24,000. You got a little room to you run. Have some room to run. I had to put 60 into it. Uh, you obviously helped with all the numbers, mm-hmm. like construction and Mike and Jerry's crew helped me with the rehab, whatever. In two months, they did a full house rehab. And I refinanced it, and I got all my money back, and I rented out a single-family home. What? Okay, so was that your first project you didn't yep. participate in With my dad. doing any work in? 100%. And you hired a GC, and you're like, I'm going to try this. Yep. You saw the numbers when it was done. Yep. What happened next? I mean, that sounds like a catalyst moment. Light bulb. Yeah. I like, was like, whoa, two, in two months. And this was a heavy lift. It wasn't like it was literally yeah. studs. Yeah, it was nothing, and I was like, "Wow!" I mean, all the stuff we're buying, what me and my dad were buying, we're full, not heavy lifts. Full plumbing, full wire, roof siding. I mean, yeah. it, if I remember right, it actually had asphalt brick siding on the outside. They did. <laughs> now it sounds it sounds like you you went into this, and and I want to we'll touch on this later on, but you had no aspirations of flipping when you first started out to generate cash. So never. So you were like, I am buy and hold, and that Where's is poor dad. That's the only route I'm taking. Well, luckily, so had, I had already had four years with my dad of doing that with single family homes. By the way, we still own all four of those. No way. Yeah, that's cool. It's really neat. It's like nostalgic. It's like, do I give it up? Do I not? No, I wanted to get out of my job. Yep. So you wanted and, pa- passive income, and I wanted my job, my dad, to get out of his job. I wanted him to be retired because he's such a hard worker. And I'm like, this is how you do it. It's not going to be one house a year. It's going to be one house every month or two. And after that happened two months, I was like, I wonder if it would work with a duplex. And that's when I went and bought this thing that I wasn't supposed to. And it actually ended up working. I lucked out. Market timing helped me a little bit. I ended up selling it after a million things went wrong, and I still made 10 k It was an Airbnb for you for, what, about a year? 
It was. Yeah. And then the city came in and said, you can't make it a duplex because there's PVC inside. And it's like, thanks a lot, unions. And nothing wrong with unions, by you the way. You had to tear up the whole kitchen. Uh, you had a kitchen upstairs. And they, and they said, nope, you can't have a second kitchen because it's not a duplex. It was. You had custom cabinets. Not what I there. thought it would yeah. be. Another life lesson. Luckily, I had a smaller issue. That was a, bit, that was a good lesson, though. Huge. I'm glad it was a duplex. Yeah. Because the next step was in a 20 unit. And that's when I was like, mm. oh, let's buy a 20. Because I had already done it with a one and a two by so myself. Bellevue one? Dundee Village. Still have it. Oh, Dundee Village. Yeah. With Mike and Jerry. Mike and Jerry. Okay. Yep. And so. Uh, All right. Hold on. Yeah. How did this happen? This is a big leap. <laughs> two to 20. How do you make that leap uh, both from a like conceptual perspective and then yeah. from like financing? And like, how did you get your dad? Was your dad involved in that one? He wasn't. Okay. Oh, Rebel. All right, let's talk about your Crazy rebellious like rebellious real estate phase that you went through before you quit your uh, full-time job. Um, well, it's 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 about numbers and I know that sounds easy to say, but I'm like I've done this 5 6 times now, right? So five single family homes at that time and a duplex. And it's the same numbers. Uh, so I said what about a 20 unit? And I actually had an opportunity to be a part of one. Uh, I think I know that you no Ted, you were actually a part of it. Um, and, and the reason that, you know, the reason it kind of got full circle group of people investing is that uh, Mike and Jerry became a part of it as well. So uh, I, I know I'm a thousand percent positive you're part of the walkthroughs, but. Um, I was the agent on that property. You were what? I was the agent on that. I, I figured. Yeah. Uh, it's numbers. And I, I don't mean to polish it off as so easy to understand, but like it, it really is just, can you raise the value of something? Can you rent it out? Can you burr it? Did you have um, investors at the time or no. was this, so this was all, you were like, I think I can swing this on my own. So or were you planning on bringing in a partner that you alluded to earlier? This one I, uh, we found in Mike and Jerry were looking at it and they didn't have the finances at the, Mike and Jerry Schlickburn didn't have the finances to make it happen. So yeah. they were looking for a partner and they approached Chris on this one. Yeah. And I'm rolling in the dough. Yeah. It sounds like it. Actually, that's crush like, crushing loss. That's actually, <laughs> that's actually not exactly. Thank you. That's actually not true. So what had happened was the, the loan I took from a family member, uh, I actually had, uh, recycled it twice. The first single family home paid him back interest 10%. Uh, I guess I should share this. I, I, I was, not everybody is allowed this opportunity. I will admit that, but it does not have to be a family member, mm -hmm. but a family member of mine gave me $100,000 and I paid that family member 10% on that money. Um, I recycled it. Gave him $10,000, which means, you know, 10%. Recycled it, gave him $10,000. And of course, at that time, they were like, first off, I believe in my family member, Chris. At the same time, I don't mind 10%. Mm -hmm. So that's when I said, uh, I will go ahead and throw that 100 into this 20 unit. I will use whatever savings I have that Shivani and I had uh, to buy this, this 20 unit, and I will buy it myself. Now you had brought up Mike and Jerry, and and uh, they're so active in real estate that it just happens to be that at the time of that cycle, they didn't have the exact amount needed, so they did not put in as much. However, they did do a great partner thing in cutting me a slight of a deal, me us, the construction rehab. So instead of them making money on construction, 
and we can get into that, but they have a construction business, obviously. They would uh, eat those profits in order to pay me back what I covered for them. And uh, within, I don't know, five, six months, they had paid their way into being 50-50 and boom, we were. That is really interesting. I, yeah. I have actually never heard you tell, tell that story yeah. before. So they they basically said, we will do this at cost in yep. return for being a partner in the deal. You, yes. as your side of the deal, will bring the money, but you won't have to do any of the work, which might have been refreshing. Always, because I don't. I don't want to do that. I, I do not want to do the work. Yeah. So they filled a gap and you filled a gap for them. So that, that was kind of like how that partnership was born. I'm going to bring it back to it's seriously like, so it's funny. Cause, uh, I think that's the first time we met at the time that I spoke, but someone told me as a joke that I was a little redundant. And when I, when I said, it's all about partnerships. And, and I sincerely mean that. There's no way I'd be at all these places unless I had my dad as a partner, unless I had Ted as a partner, unless I had Mike and Jerry Sigmund as a partner. And now, unless I had family offices writing $7 million checks, there's no way we'd be here unless we had partners because we all have something to offer, if, if that makes sense. Can I backtrack on something? Uh, one thing that I... Ba- backtrack? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> De- Dennis is putting a backtrack limit on us. It's our, it, he's our governor on this episode. <laughs> One thing that uh, personally makes me nervous is to take other people's money. Yeah. Uh, and, should. and because there's a responsibility there, right? So the first time that you took a family member's money or huh? a somebody, an, another person that you served with money, I mean, what? How did you get over that stress? How how did you build that confidence to be able to do that? Uh, that's a great question. Um, luckily for me, uh, I had had four single family homes before that to show my concept, mm. and then a duplex, um, and it was a family member. So, so there's a you know, ninety percent of it is experience. Ten percent is probably you're my family. Mm-hmm. I don't mind helping you out. Uh, so that made it easier. I, I have no idea what it would be like to say, hey, I'm buy a, I'm about to buy a $57 million uh, apartment complex in Iowa City. Uh, I've, I have no real estate experience. Family member, would you give me some money, please? Like, I have no <laughs> idea how that would go. Yeah. It's so, a totally different story when it is you have no experience and you're asking for money from people. It, it <laughs> is. So I can I can uh for for edit purposes, I can poo-poo on my unfortunate one single family a year story, but it did build at least a small enough amount of experience to show I know what I'm doing. Trust me, please. Can I borrow money? And by the way, give you money. Give you interest. It's not like I'm like, hey, family member, can I have money? I said, here, I'll, I'll give you 10%, which, by the way, even with today's inflation is not bad. Because mm-hmm. I've been really struggling with bringing in partners. I mean, I only have five properties, which equivalent to 10 units. So I, I, I'm not there, but I've done it all on my own. And I'm, and I'm really nervous about, bring, you know, I've had other people offer me money. But I've been really nervous to take that step or bring a partner in to to kind of go that next level. Well, tough. I, you've been burned in past partnerships, so you have some scar tissue. We all have. So, so that's 
that's a big part of the hesitancy and you're not dumb for doing that, Ted. I mean, it's not like there's anybody that it's only on what your goals are and can you meet them on your own? And if not, that's when you evaluate, what do I have to do to either get a other capital or be a partner that has capital or access to it? And then, then you plug that into your business model. So it just depends on what your goals are. You don't I, have, I you also don't, like full control. That's tough. So, I, so you know what's funny? So about it's, that? it's funny we have the biggest control freak in the world on. Thank the, you, here I am on, on the uh, on the podcast today. Uh, actually, but you know, I'm I'm glad that that comment is recorded in history. But actually, it's honestly for the people you talk to. That's actually good to hear that you have some EQ, and you actually care about the money you're borrowing. Mm-hmm. The, the hardest step, and I'm not trying to, 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 to teach you a lesson because it was very difficult for me, is if you – so the hurdle I jumped over was I, I hated borrowing money. I, I hated it. Because I, I witnessed you go over that. There's uh, some, some multifamilies that you bought on Park Ave. And, yes. And, and I remember when you're going through that, you had uh, military buddies that were investing in you. Yes. And you're responsible for other people's money. And I, I remember at that moment, I'm like, I, mean, I couldn't imagine. At that time, I was, was thinking, I couldn't imagine that stress of uh, being responsible for other people's money. And I, and I saw the stress in you, too, at that time. It was stress. And at that time, legitimate stress. But here's the thing, though. If in your head, and, and I sincerely mean this, if in your head you believe the process and you understand the risks and you can still have that conversation with the person giving you money, you, you need to take that leap because if you don't, you'll never get that opportunity because you can go to when I borrowed money from my family member to buy a uh, – it actually was a single family, then a duplex, then a 20-unit. Uh, I was just learning, but I, I, I trusted the process. Now I'm borrowing money from people who write millions of dollars of checks, but I believe the process. So you just – if you have faith in yourself – it's worth taking that leap. Here's so there's a concept called story selling, and it's uh, related to like so. I was in uh, like I worked for Northwestern Mutual for a short period of time, but they have a really intense and really like an excellent training program in sales. And so they they uh, tie this back to story selling. So if you're able to articulate your experience and explain why it was a successful, you know, project or deal or whatever it is you're trying to, you know, sell essentially. And you can explain like why it went well, what struggles you, you overcame and why it ended up being successful. And you can do that in a repeatable way where people are tied into your story, then you're going to be able to be successful in raising capital from people, whether it's to whatever whatever it is you believe in, but you have to believe in it. That's the I think that's the takeaway exactly from all this. Yep. So you you did a proof of concept basically like four or five times, and you said, you know what, like I can do this because I bought a twenty fourth and Blonda, which is not a great area, people. Nope. Um, <laughs> A single family house and I can, you know, make a successful rental property out of it. And you did that rinse and repeat four or five times. And you said, I believe in this. I can figure this out. And I'm confident that if you give me your money, not only will it be successful, but you'll get a good interest rate return out of the deal as well. Right. And 100%. so, so it's not like, Hey mom, can I borrow some money again? Thanks for letting me stay in the basement. Uh, although mm-hmm. you may have done that as well. Oh, certainly. Um, but you're, putting their money to work and giving them a good return for it. And I think that's an interesting 
mindset shift that it takes a long time for some people to get to yeah. and a shorter amount of time for other people to get to. Let's explore that for a minute. Like what was there a point where you said, I believe in this so much that I want to make this my ticket to getting into something I really enjoy versus something that I went to school for and I'm so invested in now that I can't get out of it. That, that first single family home where I did nothing myself. Now I did everything myself. I directed it. I was the quarterback, if you will, and get out of the way. Uh, I'm actually first string now. Uh, <laughs> no, but seriously, like once I learned that I could sit high level and and direct what needed to be done and get it done in a lot, a lot shorter amount of time, it, I, I say light bulb, but it's like it's ridiculous how I was like, holy cow! I'm glad that I was right. And even at that time, even the 20 unit, I did not tell my dad. Because I what I kept seeing this future thing where I wanted my dad to know this isn't single family, baby. This is 20. This is 220. This is 420. 421. <laughs> I, I like I, I really, really wanted it to I wanted uh, it meant a lot to me in my relationship with my father, but also my relationship with my life and my family and my job I didn't like is that I wanted to show this can be done put the work in and it it'll provide you passive income and mm -hmm. it took a long time but we were able to make it happen i'm pretty happy about that your relationship with your goals as well because i mean you had that dream of of leaving your job and retiring your father so that was a big part to play it huge so huge you preluded a few times that you you're getting into the syndication yeah and what taught you that syndication business like what was what was the catalyst for you yeah i mean uh well borrowing money from family yeah. and then i was like holy cow i borrowed money from one family member and i was able to make a 20 unit work so when i said one works two works 20 works let's go to an 87 unit let's go to 150 unit and it was the same math and you know, people like, uh, I don't know if this will be edited or not, but people like Grant Cardone will say, it's your first deal. Just jump into a 700-unit apartment complex. I'm not suggesting that, but I am saying it is the same idea. You analyze it the same way. It's just bigger numbers. It, yeah, that that's actually something that I wanted to ask you because you mentioned this is, this is probably the second or third time you mentioned okay. it's the same math over and over. Yes, I am taking over the podcast because this Get is episode it. fifty. Yeah, yeah, look episode look fifty. Let's talk I am today. asking questions. Okay, good. <laughs> so you say it's the same numbers over and over. So what are those numbers that you're actually talking about? Could you like just detail that a little bit? What numbers do you look at that may be different to may be different to like Owens or Ted's? Yeah, yeah fair enough. Well, I, I I deal with a lot bigger numbers than they do. I'm just that was a joke. That was a joke. That was a joke. You can go ahead and edit if you want to. No, but I'm, I'm totally that. joking. <laughs> actually, you know what though? Go ahead. And I know you want to have a response. No, but actually, what I mean by that is this: I will recircle back to something I said a very long time ago, probably an hour now. So I apologize. <laughs> it's about sharing a piece of the pie. It's about thinking that you have to do everything yourself. That you have to bring in every dollar yourself. You don't. And if that means that you have to learn the hard way on a deal that you only got 20% of and when it was done with, you're like, shoot, I could have had 60%. Good. First off, you made 20%, so sit down. And take on the next one and make 60%. And so what I would suggest is that have that comfort level with yourself 
wherever you're starting of can you let go of some control and whether it's control or whether it's money in order to learn and help others so that you can continue to move forward to build whatever you want to so you can make 20 and 30 and 50 and 70% of what you want to. And maybe it stalls at 70. So long-winded, I'm charging you every six minutes. <laughs> the question from Ted was, why syndication? Well, when I'm buying $26 million properties in Dallas, I, I can't write a check from my living room for, for that. I, I can't buy that. I need to lean on so many people, investors, and now large check writers, and now property managers, and now people who can do inspections. Like, There's no way I'll get there unless I try to surround myself with teams. And sometimes people close to me say, Chris, why do you only own 30% of that deal? Like, you're not really a 100% owner. Like, you don't really own it. And it's like, what? I would never own it at all unless I agreed to be 30%. And by the way, now that I've learned this, I'm 34% owner of the next one. And I'm 37% owner of the next one. And there will be a cap. I'll never be 100% over my own. I have partners like Colin. Colin. I have partners like uh, property managers or we bring all types of people. So it's about sharing the pie. Hmm. So having – there's a – saying that Colin likes to throw in my face all the time where when I make fun of him about owning 1% of yeah, a, yeah. a million properties. I can hear you saying that. Yeah. And he says, would you rather own one McDonald's or 1% of all the McDonald's? 100%. Right? So, okay. Oh, hold, on, hold on. Not 100% of one. 100% what Colin said is true. So, all right. Let me ask you this. So, that's, so this is a mind shift for a lot of people that are – Lone wolves, let's say they've been, yeah. they're used to swinging a hammer We're or all they're, lone wolves. yeah, or they're, they're out and they're trying to hustle and just make, make it work on their first single family or their first multifamily or whatever. And they're getting started and they're super scared of partnerships for whatever reason. And you, you come in and say, you know what? Think bigger, uh, embrace the ability of, you know, you and others to scale. Like you could, you could make this into a partnership or, a sponsor uh, situation in a multifamily or whatever the case may be. Like, how does somebody get to the point where they're comfortable with that? It, it's not easy. And uh, I'm not saying you should just laissez-faire pick a partner. You should do the same things you do if you wanted to hang out with somebody, if you wanted to um, trust somebody with your family member, if you wanted to. Like, it, it takes that series of getting comfortable with somebody, but know that there's – not a 100% threshold you need to get through, meaning you don't have to be 101% positive that this person is the only person you'll ever partner with. You need to be 80% positive that the risk you're taking on this deal is much lower than the amount you trust your partner with. Hmm. If, Interesting. If you're like, I, I trust my partner 99% on this deal. And this risk is only like a 60% risk. I think you're fine. Now, there's a huge amount of pie and money to be thrown into that. If you're trusted with other people's money, maybe maybe that money goes up on how much – or the percentage goes up on how much you need to trust somebody. But it does not need to be perfect in order for you to take that next step. I want to ask you something. So you had uh, 
a career previously as an attorney and you spent some time in the courtroom. What skills and like attributes from your prior profession as a as an attorney and have, have, spending time in litigation as well as like contract law and all that? Yeah. What did you pull from that that you were able to apply into uh, into real estate investing and, and be successful? He pulled that he could get out of the military early. Uh, that, I mean, that worked. Sure. <laughs> uh, I think it was justified in my position, but um, I was my own client at that time, so I, I was successful with my own client. Uh, <clears throat> It would be hard for me to say that the training I received as an attorney has not helped me in real life. I'm sure that it has. What's crazy is that I honestly think the training I received in my master's in negotiation has actually trained me more. Now, it fits my personality more because uh, – and I'll admit this. Uh, so uh, the businesses that I own now, we're having every single employee take a DISC test. Mm-hmm. What, what is that? Well, it's, it's just it's, – it's a way to figure out – there's different levels. There's four levels, D, I, S, and C. And you make sure that you understand where everybody's strengths are. And to be honest, I, I it, it leaves me what each one stands for. I is interpersonal. Do you D know is dominant. S is social, right? Yes. And, and C, C is, is creative. I'm a I'm a really high I and a I'm like a like a ninety percent I and a like a seventy percent D. No question that Ted is high I. I've never seen him take a test and there's any results. There's no question because Ted is very good interpersonally, and so am I actually. And that's not a that's not a flex on my personalities. I'm lower in other areas. Um, but what that'll tell you is that I, the reason me bringing that up is not the flex that I'm high I. By the way, there are pros and cons to that. Uh, the reason I bring that up is that uh, the training has helped me, uh, but I don't know how much being an attorney has helped me. Unfortunately, Lord of mercy. <laughs> unfortunately, and fortunately for me, what it may have helped is that if I walk into a room because I just got off of work, Owen, and I'm wearing a suit... <laughs> All of a sudden, someone's like, that guy may know something or he's overdressed. I haven't figured it out yet, but he may know something. Or if I go to a bank, that there's no question that helped me. If I go to a bank and I need to, I need to get a loan, they may have said, oh, he has an attorney job. That helps. But I'm telling you, if you approach things as traditional attorneys approach things, it's all combative. And it's not going to help you in the real estate world. It's more of the negotiation and like interpersonal situations that actually help. I, w- I would say in my experience and, you know, seeing you on calls and like in meetings that we've had together and, and just in action in general, I I think you got more from that than maybe you realize. Not to give myself credit for. And, yeah. And, and that you are able to like ask uncomfortable questions, which I think is a default that a lot of people maybe – go to. They, yeah. they aren't, they, they don't want to do that. They don't want to ask uncomfortable questions because the end result might be scary right. compared to what their expectations were. Ah, but, fair. but I, but I've seen fair. you do that a lot of times in like calls and meetings and everything that we've had where you've asked the elephant in the room question and not that, I mean, it takes balls. So props to you for that, but I'm just curious on like, was that inherent or was that a product of maybe also law school and military and everything else like nature versus nurture? Yeah. Tell us the reason why you have big balls. 
Oh, here's a, this is great. This is great. Uh, well, um, thanks, Vince. Uh, that was a gene- genetic joke. You see what I did there? I got it. Thank got you. It. Uh, uh, I can't say that I always did. And I'm sure that, I'm glad you brought that up, maybe there is part of that that's, I wouldn't say that's law school. It could be experience as an attorney that allows you to ask those questions. So so I'm certainly overlooking things that maybe gave me a little experience that allowed me to do that. But I, I also feel as though what I've, if you, if you ask my friends from sixth grade, like I think that it's certainly obvious that uh, maybe I've changed slightly throughout the years, but I, I really was just after what's the answer? Like, how can we get there? And sometimes maybe I may have, it may be viewed upon as though I'm like, uh, maybe I'm not interpersonal because it's like, holy cow, that was very, you, you did not recognize emotional cues in this conversation. But it's more like, okay, we can talk for the next 17 hours, but like, I'm trying to get to an answer. So let's get there. I feel like that's a little nature. Uh, and I'm sure there's some nurture when it comes to, so, to be an attorney. But I can tell this much, though. Whether there's nature or nurture, get to the answer quicker. Whether I talk too much during this podcast, maybe I'm not getting to the answers very quickly. <laughs> but I can tell you, if you're trying to accomplish business goals, it's important to build emotional uh, EQ, if you will, because you can build relationships. And you can actually understand where each party is coming from so you can uh, benefit both parties. But at the same time, I've always had this thing of where uh, – why are we talking about A, B, and C? Like, D is what matters. Let's talk about it. Yeah, the D matters. The D matters. Okay, so. The D matters whether you want to admit it or not. <laughs>